Welcome back to another episode of Broken, the suspicious death of Aladar and the end of horse racing's golden age. I'm Denise Cueto, your host. And I'm Fred Cray, the author. We're happy to have you with us today. How's everything been going? Uh, getting ready for CrimeCon. Well, that's um, exciting. Getting all the stuff together, the booth, the electricity, the internet. Um, it's pretty exciting. The other thing that happened this week was... I commissioned a painting of Aladar with Jessica Leonard. I bought a print and I liked it so much that I contacted her and said, listen, I'd like you to do a commission and paint a picture of Aladar. So she's going to do that. And on our Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram page, she'll be sharing the process of her painting that picture. So she'll show you know, all the different stages that you go through oh, when you wow. paint a picture, which to me will be fascinating because I've never seen that. Yeah. Um, and and for the viewers too, they'll be able to kind of follow along. Right. You mentioned CrimeCon. Tell us a little bit more about that. CrimeCon is a big meeting of all the people that are interested in true crime. Uh, they hold it all around the country different years. Uh, I think it's been to San Francisco, Las Vegas... This year, it's in Orlando, and because it's so close, it's easy for us. Um, but there will probably be 50 to 75 vendors, booths, and a lot of the booths are big booths like uh, Oxygen. Yeah. Uh, they have a place where you can take a picture like you're a dead body that they have outlined. <laughs> uh, we're going to take a picture, a life-size uh, image of Aladar that you can take a picture next to a selfie. Mm. Um, and you know, we've got, uh, hats, shirts, books. There'll be a lot of stuff there that people can, um, buy and they give, uh, there are events from like nine to whenever it closes of, you know, people, those people giving, uh, talks and, uh, there'll be a podcaster row where all the true crime podcasters are going to be. And I'm looking forward to meeting each and every one of those guys and talking about broken and, uh, and this podcast. Um, I think there's probably going to be about, I don't know, five or 6,000 attendees. Um, it's amazing. You know, it's just an amazing event and I think it's perfect for, um, me to attend. Our booth number is S 36. So, it's going to be a blast, and we'll, I think we'll meet a lot of people and make a lot of uh, great connections there uh, that will help this book cross over into true crime. It sounds like it's going to be amazing. Can't wait for you to go and tell us what it was like and who you met and be able to talk to fans, have them come up to you. So that's going to be a really exciting weekend for you. So I can't stop thinking about that equine true crime. I mean, that that's just brilliant. Tell us a little bit more about that. Well, as I said earlier, I was on Twitter and, and a guy said that. He said, hey, this, you know, I had a, uh, you know, an advertisement about the book. And his, his reply was equine true crime. And I said, hey, <laughs> I'm going to use that. And actually the banner at uh, CrimeCon is going to say equine <laughs> true crime at the very top. And it's going to have pictures of all of the... Uh, pictures that Tom Dixon had that were taken that night and that morning, which are the scene of the crime. Mm -hmm. And so, um, I think it's a very catchy title. I like it. Um, 
and it rhymes. It does. That's so. always a great thing. Um, and equine true crime, that is a thing. You've mentioned it in past episodes where there was a hitman that would go about, this isn't something that, you know, it was a one case, just Aladar situation. This is something that happens or happened. Yes. And as, as a matter of fact, I interviewed the hitman for this book mm-hmm. and uh, his name is Tommy Burns and he killed between 15 and 20 horses for the insurance money. There were several articles written about him. Uh, the, the article in Sports Illustrated that had the sidebar about Aladar was written about Tommy Burns. Uh, there was a book written about him called Hot Blood. There was a TV show called Bad Sport where he tells his story on Netflix. So I think the title of the episode is called The Horse Hitman. Wow. And it's, it's something that's happened a lot. In my book, I have a three pages where I go through and list, you know, the horses that have been killed and the manner in which they were killed. And many people um, have told me that those three pages are terrible to read, and mm. they are. But they belong in the book because many people don't believe that this could really happen, that a person would kill a horse for the insurance money. Right. And it's common. I don't mean to say it happens every day all the time, but what I mean is what happened to Aladar is not an isolated event. Right. Yeah, before your book, I had never even thought about that. And when you brought that to light, it was a little bit shocking. So we are deep in the drama of this story and we are headed towards that finish line. And it's all... That's a pretty good pun. (laughs) Like that? Yeah. Alton Stone. His story... Makes me sad. Um, What happened to him? Did he get convicted? He did. He uh, was convicted. He actually served five months. Mm. It's the first and only time that he's ever told his story to anyone. And it's, uh, I I don't think he has anything new to add that's, you know, earth shattering. But it's great to hear him tell his story. uh, And he's so believable. Yeah. Yeah. It's just, it made me so sad um, listening to it and listening to this sweet Kelly Butcher calling him stony and how he doesn't think he would have had, had anything to do with it. And the fact that he took the fall basically. Yes. His case illustrates the danger of, you know, arresting someone hoping they'll flip, mm-hmm. but the person doesn't know anything. Right. Because what does that person do now? You can't just say, well, let's drop the case because we don't think he knows anything. You know, what price victory? What was all that for? I mean, what, you know, it's a lying to a grand jury is a very unusual charge. It's very rare that that, that charge ever gets filed or, or someone gets arrested for that. I can't think of another case where that happened. Really? Um, but again, they did it to, to try and force him to say that, you know, he knew he knew that Lundy did it. And they, you know, in the trial, they were relentless about that, you know, and the prosecutor went on, you know, was very strong about he, he lied to cover up. He was the one that they could trust not to say anything, all these things. And, you know, to me, my belief is that he never knew anything and that if he had known something rather than go to jail for five months and go through this whole process, he would have made a deal. Right. Uh, you know, and he had, he had gotten married before he went to jail. So, um, 
the FBI investigated whether he had been paid or got any, and they found nothing. And everybody I talked to that knew him said, hey, if he got money, where is it? He's living paycheck to paycheck just like everybody else. How then did this accident lead to a court case? What led this entire story to court? What led it to court was um, when First City National Bank was taken over by the, the FDIC, they started to review the loans that uh, First City had made. And one of the batches of loans that went really bad all the time were loans to Calumet. And here is a bank in Houston that has no um, history or uh, knowledge of making horse loans, making a 50, you know, all these 50, a $50 million loan to Calumet. And they all go under. And so they start, the, the prosecutor for the white collar case, Julia Tamala, starts looking at all the paperwork and she keeps seeing this name, Aladar. She doesn't know anything about horses. She doesn't know who Aladar is. She gets her FBI agent guy, Rob Foster, to start looking into it, and they go out to Calumet. They want to see what it's like. What? Where's all this money going? Mm. And they start interviewing witnesses, and they interview uh, Alton Stone, and they interview Keith Hiley, and all the stories start to contradict each other. And they find out that, you know, uh, Cowboy Kip was taking the night off and was told by uh, Calumet management to do so. And they find out from Terry McVeigh that he wasn't let in the next day. And then they have this mountain of financial evidence that shows that Calumet was in dire financial need. And then they have the payout of $36.5 million from Lloyds of London and $5 million from Golden Eagle, which allows Calumet to stay open for an additional six to eight months. And so they then decide to arrest Alton Stone for lying to the grand jury. And uh, they also arrest Gary Matthews and J.T. Lundy for bank fraud because they start getting into the, you know, how did these loans get made? How do these loans to a place that has no cash flow get made? How How does First City with their, you know, their board of directors and all their guys that vet loans, how did that happen? And then they find out, well, Frank Chiak is the inside man there and he's making sure that none of the loans get vetted and they all get, all the money gets loaned off of his, you know, signature. And is this when the FBI got involved as well? The FBI got involved before that. Hmm. The FBI got involved when when they went down to, and they, they wanted to know, how Aladar's death, how this money got paid, that's what they were interested in. How did, why did all these loans get made and how were they paid back after Aladar died? And to what extent was that, was that a calculated thing that Aladar was used to pay off First City loans? All right, this is Fred Cray. I'm in the office of Rob Foster and we're going to discuss the uh, case of Aladar and J.T. Lundy and Gary Matthews. All right, so you first became involved in the Aladar case. It was your first case. Yes. 
And so you went there and you were assigned to the bank fraud unit? Yes. You know, and I, I said this to you on the phone. You know, going, going back after the fact, at the time of the, of the injury, the picture everybody had was this was Calumet's, you know, golden ticket, everything. Yeah. And, and this, is, this is Calumet. And so the idea that anything other than an accident could have happened wasn't even in the realm. Yeah. I mean, it wasn't considered. So I don't, like, when I, when I think about Tom Dixon and Larry Bramlage um, to a large extent, I don't doubt their conclusions, but their conclusions were, were I believe, significantly um, altered by that belief right. that this could not be anything other than accident. And at the time, everyone it was everyone said he kicked the door and broke his leg. And That's the, the, that was the accepted theory. And, and the other thing is, is I can find no one who has ever heard of a horse breaking his cannon bone kicking a door. Yeah, well... Yeah, I'm sure it's never been, never happened. It's never happened. We were trying to figure out what happened to him. It was suspicious that the timing of it, the, the, when the horse was injured, coincided with several things: uh, a future cancellation of an insurance policy, a bank note that was due in a few months, um, like a large portion of it. So we thought the timing and and the circumstances were uh, suspicious. Yeah. So, but when you went to talk to Stone, what your interest was to um, find out if Aladar had any, there was any connection between Calumet and Aladar's murder. But what do you mean between Calumet and Aladar's murder? Well, did you ever discuss with Stone in any of your statements, you know, what he thought happened or uh, how improbable this whole scenario was? I'm sure we did. I mean, I, I don't, you know, as I sit here today, I can't, the logical conclusion would have been he had to have known what was going on, but I can't tell you that I, as I sit here that I know for sure that he knew what was going on. He well, could have just asked you, I could have, I was going to ask you in hindsight, yeah. sitting here today knowing that he never said anything, yeah. that, um, and I want to, you know, and he's, did you trace whether he got any money or any benefit from it? I don't believe he got. Yeah, we tried. I didn't. We couldn't find that he got any any money, any benefit. Um, you know, we at the time we're probably theorizing that he's trying to. If, if in fact he knew that he's just trying to satisfy his boss, his yeah. boss is telling him to do something, yeah. and he needed the job. Uh, so, but again, as I sit sit here now. I can't tell you that I know for sure he knew. I mean, it is possible that he didn't know anything. It is. What did Cowboy Kip say? Was there anything that he said about how the accident may have happened? I mean, all these horse guys have their own opinion. Everyone I've talked to has yeah. said, well, I think this, I think that. Um, what was his opinion? I don't know if I remember what his opinion was. I know that he was suspicious because he was asked to not be there. And, yeah. and he, he loved... You know, uh, the appearances where he loved Calumet and he loved yeah. Aladar and, and I think he was devastated. I don't know, I don't, I don't remember asking him, how do you think it happened? We may have, yeah. but I don't, I don't okay. remember asking him that. But he did think the horse, it was intentional. Yeah. In fact, in, in my looking at the case, there's very few people that believe it was an accident. My question to you is, if we believe that the metal lips are going inward. Right. 
how does that door go through the wall? I mean, that door is is wide enough so that the stall walls are won't let it go in. Right. So how do you hit it in? How could you hit it in? What do you mean hit it in? Because it was hit out. Oh, I thought I thought it was hit in. That you you're talking about the kick? I'm talking about what Pratt said. I thought that Pratt said that the, the, bra the, the bracket was right was was towards the inside yes. of the stall. Yes, so you couldn't. Yeah, you physically couldn't. So how could you hit it in? You couldn't. So it would have to be sawed or something. Right. Okay. And that's what we're saying is okay. what they showed us was not the bracket. All right. The and bracket so in the picture is not the bracket. All right. And so. Uh, so you're saying so it would have been sawed off from the outside? Yes. Is what we're saying. Yeah. What I'm saying is, I mean, the first thing I think of is well, you get a little hammer, you go bang. But then I look at the door. I've got a bunch of pictures. Here. I didn't bring all of the stuff mm -hmm. with me because. When you look at the door, that door slides over. Right, and it covers the. And it covers door. it covers the whole door. Right. So you couldn't hit the door; would not go in. Right. Now the other thing that was missed in the trial is that, in terms of kicking, uh, I mean I know it was missed, but I mean the point is when that door is closed and that latch is latched, there is a, a V insert in the floor here that right. this door slides into. Right. So when the door is closed, it's secured on all four sides. Right. So when you think of a horse kicking the door out, and it has to, the door has to go out five inches, to get his hoof through, three, uh, yeah. three feet off the ground. Right. And that that with his right leg, with his right leg, with with the door being in the V. Yeah. And the latch completely un undamaged. Right. Yeah, it's impossible. And that those are the points we were we were bringing yeah. up. We were trying yeah. to bring up. Yeah. Yeah. The 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 theory that he kicked the door is. Or that his leg got stuck in the door. Either one are virtually impossible. And I've talked to every horseman. Now this here, this guy here, this is Paul Pryor, his groom for, for like eight years. Okay. Uh, he gave me some great information about whether he's a kicker, whether he's not a kicker. What did he say? No. He said no. Okay. He said Aladar never kicked. He said that uh, he would paw the front door. And he said the reason he pawed the front door, because, and I didn't know this at the time, but I talked to another guy named Kelly Butcher. At the time in '90, when they were they were getting grooms that were not experienced, these guys like Michael Coulter, he had no hard horse experience. Yeah, he got thrown to the wolves, is what this guy said. And but he was good at the wolves. That's how the, instead of being horsemen, they controlled the horse with carrots, and so he got used to wanting carrots, and that's He's how he starts pawing for. Yeah. It's like a conditioned response, you know. So. Um, and I asked him, in the eight years that he was his groom, did he ever have to have the stall walls repaired? Did he ever discuss with anybody padding his stall? Uh, any of that stuff? No. I would say that Rob Foster was, uh, you know, he was, he was a skilled investigator. He was the one who interviewed uh, Stone, you know, multiple times and was the one who testified in court about all of the inconsistencies. You know, that kind of goes to the whole heart of Alton Stone's prosecution, that you have a person who's the, the lead investigator and now we're talking about it, you know, 30 years later, and he's, he doesn't know the answer. Uh, and, you know, yet when you read the transcript, they're full bore scorched earth, you know, uh, prosecuting Alton Stone as if he not only that not only was he there right they're saying that he did it or knew who did do it I mean that's a far cry from what he 
what Rob Foster has to say. Right. And what did the F- FBI investigation reveal? Well, it, it revealed that there were a lot of stories that nobody knew. It revealed that nobody asked, n- nobody knew that Cowboy Kip, it revealed that Cowboy Kip was told to take the night off. It revealed that Keith Hiley said that uh, um, Alton Stone, he saw Alton Stone in the stallion barn at 10 o'clock, that uh, the office lights were on, meaning that somebody was in the office. Um, it revealed that uh, Lundy said that somebody was in the office when uh, they heard some kicking from Aldar and went to find him, and that's when he was injured. Mm-hmm. I mean, all these inconsistencies were found out, and it made the, the prosecutor and the FBI agent think there is something going on here because we're getting all these different stories. Right. And so the FBI was getting all these stories, and they all added up to conspiracy, fraudulently get money from First, Na- First City National with Frank Chiak, the bank executive, involved with J.T. Lundy. So we've gone through five of the theories so far, and we have another. We have theory number six, and that involves George Pratt. Who is he? George Pratt was a MIT engineer who was involved in, with horses, and the prosecution hired him solely for Lundy's sentencing hearing. Um, and in the sentencing hearing, uh, his job was to uh, prove that Aladar's injury was an intentional injury. His theory about how Aladar got hurt, he never testified to that at the sentencing hearing, but he did discuss it in a, uh, a show called Unbridled Greed, The Rise and Fall of Calumet, uh, that was done by Dominic Dunn. And he also put it in his report, which you can read on my website, that he gave to the attorneys uh, so they would know what his opinion was. I mean, my basic conclusion is the bracket found in the aisle was a plant. If Aladar had sheared those bolts by a kick them inside the stall, the lip of metal would have been pointing towards the outside of the stall. In reality, the lip of metal was pointing more or less into the stall. We did a calculation on the force that would be required to shear those bolts off. So horse couldn't do it. This was not a flimsy door. Someone might have uh, put a rope around the back leg, put it out through the stall, the grating in the stall door, and pulled his leg up and made the horse fall. I find that theory completely unsupported by the evidence in the sense that nobody's ever seen or documented any farm equipment in the barn. That's a lot. And it just seems to me unlikely. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, the other opinion that he had that also, to me, caused a, you know, a lot of problems for making sense, his theory was that the bolts that he found when he went there, in, you know, whenever he went there after this, I think he went there several years later, and they actually took out the bolts from the floor, the whole, a whole cement piece that held the original bolts, and he looked at the original bolts. And he said the original bolts are not the same as the bolts that were shown in Tom Dixon's picture where the bolts were rusted off mm. because the bolts were flat. Mm-hmm. And he and so when the judge said, well, where did where did this bracket that 
was they found, where did that come from? Mm-hmm. It was like a throwdown bracket that they brought with them. And he said, I don't know. And so that wasn't a very logical theory to me. In other words, that somebody would come in uh, before the accident, bring with them a bracket that was already broken and take the original bracket with them and throw down a fake bracket that had different bolts in it. To me, that never made that never made sense to me. And I, I thought that um, a more a more logical theory would be that Stanley Broughton cut the bolts off in order to put new bolts in. Uh, and that's why the bracket didn't, those bolts didn't match. It wasn't that those weren't the original bolts. It's that Stanley cut them off and that's why they didn't, they weren't the same length. And then, so I thought that um, while Pratt had some great testimony about how the forces required, I thought that they didn't follow up on that and that his other opinions were not likely. Dr. Pratt used a mathematical calculation based on the bolts that were that bolted the bracket into the ground. There were two of them, and they were a certain diameter. And his calculations were that he would take what it would the force it would take to break those bolts off. And so there's you know, there's a formula with this, you know a certain kind of steel. It takes this much time, this much force. But then he took into account the fact that Aldar was not kicking right where the bracket was. He was kicking three feet above that. And how much force would it take to kick three feet above that? and have enough force to break those two bolts. And he came out with a figure of uh, 13,200 pounds. And, and, and that would mean 6,600 pounds for each leg. And he said there's no way a stallion, any stallion, can produce that kind of energy mm-hmm. to break those bolts off. And as I said before, the problem with that is that the bolts weren't, were corroded. So uh, nobody really asked him at trial what would, ha- what would happen if the bolts were corroded and how much force would it take to push the door out far enough for him to get the door weighs 300 pounds. Mm-hmm. You've got gravity. How much force would it take for him to kick the door out with the, with the bolts being not a factor? That was never asked, nor could I ever hire anybody to give me that information. So that was a loophole that really... I don't know. The lawyers didn't ask it. Maybe uh, the the prosecution knew and knew it was bad for their case. Maybe the defense knew and knew it was not good for their case or whatever, or they didn't know and they didn't want to bring it up now. But uh, that, that question was never asked. The only question was asked at trial was, would the, would the force be lower if the bolts were corroded? And I mean, anybody would say, yes, it would be. And that's what Pratt said, but that was never defined. So, um, to me, uh, that, that really should have been something that was, if they were seriously going to present this as, as a, as a theory, uh, to disprove that question should have been, uh, asked, but since he's passed away, Dr. Pratt, we can't ask him or ask him to redo the calculations. Um, he had other opinions, um, one, uh, that were favorable for the prosecution, the most important of which was the fact that the door was broken from the outside in, not from the inside out. In other words, Aldar, when he looked at the uh, how the bolts were broken that were in 
in the stall that when he got there years later, when he looked at those, uh, it was his opinion that the lips, the lip of the bolt was such that it looked like it had been broken from outside the stall inward, like somebody had kicked it from the outside, rather than Aladar kicking it from the inside and breaking it out. Mm-hmm. So that that leads to a conclusion that it couldn't have been Aladar kicking the door in the first place because mm-hmm. the bolts were not, uh, the lip of the bolts was not consistent with an inside-out break. So that was favorable for the prosecution. I tried for years to get somebody in engineering to do this mm-hmm. and was unable to because they didn't want to get involved in a book. They didn't want to get sued. They didn't, it was outside their liability insurance uh, that they had. Uh, in my mind, um, I don't think it makes any difference because of the lack of evidence of a kick on the door or the cement uh, or uh, any markings on the cement block. I think you just can't get around that. Dr. Pratt was an important witness, but you know there was there were a lot of things left unanswered, and and really I think that in the end his his testimony raised more questions than it answered. And again, pictures of the bolts are on the website, so listeners can go and take a look at them and see what they think. Right, and and the pictures of the bolts as they were as they were found by Pratt in the ground is on the website also you'll see this round this pe- this picture and you'll see that where the original bolts were and where stanley put in new bolts right next to them it seems like pratt didn't have as many answers as we would have liked so what's the next step well we can't ask dr pratt so that's <laughs> that's not the next step so the next step is to talk to somebody who has killed a horse for the insurance money hmm. many times and show them Tom Dixon's pictures and ask them to give an expert opinion about what happened. And that's what we're going to do in the next episode with Tommy Burns, a.k.a. The Sandman. Join us next time on Broken, the suspicious death of Aladar and the end of horse racing's golden age. I'm your host, Denise Cueto. And I'm Fred Cray, and we hope to see you next time. Our podcast is a production of Hazel Time Studios. This episode was produced and edited by Ashley York and John Fee. David Amani is our production assistant. Join us next time.